China has emerged as one of the 21st century's most consequential nations, making it more important than ever to understand how the country is governed. Welcome to Pekingology, the podcast that unpacks China's evolving political system. I'm Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS, and this week I'm joined by Wei Tui, professor at the Peter A. Allard School of Law at the University of British Columbia. Today we'll be discussing his recent book, The Administrative Foundations of the Chinese Fiscal State. Wei, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Zhu. So first question for you, which is the same question I ask all guests is, I'm curious for a bit of an intellectual biography. How did you come to focus on tax systems? And also, how did you gain an interest in in exploring and understanding China's tax and fiscal system? Great. Thank you. So I went to law school in the United States after spending a number of years in graduate school. So by the time I entered law school, I was old enough to want to find a particular career path. And so I thought hard if I wanted to engage with China as a lawyer, what could be the topic I want to focus on. The unfortunate thing was that I didn't find most topics in law school that interesting. Tax was something that I did find interesting. And so I went into that hoping and also betting that tax would be important for China, for a country like China. So what happened was after law school, I practiced in New York City as a tax lawyer for a number of years, then went back to China. When I was in China, I continued to practice tax law while holding a teaching position at a major university. That's the way in which I engage with Chinese public finance in general and tax law in particular. So by both practicing it and also by teaching it. And a third component of that career in Beijing, which lasted from 2006 to 2013, was that I did engage extensively in government advisory work. So if you're an academic in China, uh, a big job I have is actually just to attend government meetings all the time. So you may be familiar with this. So I was lucky to be in that position and be invited into meetings on tax policy with quite some frequency, uh, rather unexpected for someone. Um, I actually held a U.S. passport, but was delighted to find that my training was useful in Beijing. So I did that for seven years. And since 2013, I've moved to Canada. And now I engage with the Chinese tax system primarily in two ways. Uh, One is by reading government announcement. And second is to collaborate with economists using actual data from firms to analyze Chinese tax policy. You know, before we get into some specific questions about the tax system and the book itself, I wonder, just can you tell us a bit about the origins of the book? Had had this been something you were stewing on for a while? What were the puzzles that you were looking to to solve or explore when you first put pen to paper? That's a great question. There actually is a very specific story about how I was led to write the book. So I was based in Beijing for seven and a half years. I got to know the central government agencies very well. One thing that I learned through those seven years is something that I think China observers don't comment on uh, often enough, which is the central government in China has a very small sized staff. And so the State Administration of Taxation, which is the tax agency that I work with, has employees 0.1% of the tax workforce. And if you look at the IRS, who's in the DC office of the IRS, that is uh, something more like 10%. And so that's a drastic difference in 
central government staffing and central government functions. So what I discovered was that it was very easy to get to know the people in the central agency because there weren't that many of them. I began to recognize that, you know, it's a very Beijing-centric view. My colleagues in the agency, in both in the State Administration of Taxation and the Ministry of Finance, and also in the National People's Congress, often lacked information about what's coming from uh, what's happening in the uh, ground level tax administration. Another thing I noticed was that because I'm trained as a tax lawyer, I read Chinese tax law and administrative guidance very closely. I found out shortly after arriving in Beijing that many of my peers, tax practitioners, paid a lot less attention to statutes, regulation, administrative guidance, and put a lot more weight onto having in-person interactions with government officials. This is something that I was quite curious about. It was as though that people didn't really care what the law actually said. They cared more about what particular individuals in government thought. So I was beginning to flesh this out towards the end of my stay in China, um, trying to you know, so my guess was that uh, there was a decentralized tax administration that makes knowledge of tax law irrelevant in many circumstances. So that was a guess, and I wrote an academic article about that. But then I was contacted by tax administrators in China from a couple of provinces saying that they agreed with my assessment and they were trying to change the system. So this happened in 2015, and for me, I was totally delighted because I was making a guess about what was actually happening. And my colleagues in Beijing did not necessarily recognize this phenomenon that I was quite curious about. And it was neat that uh, tax administrators actually cared about this idea. So I had a second stint working with provincial tax administration, trying to learn more about Chinese tax administration, and that became the main material for the book. Yeah, and I would say that's one of the, the aspects of the book, which we'll talk about, that I found most interesting is it fits into this larger body of literature that shows that oftentimes Beijing does not have a particularly accurate tactile sense of what's happening on the ground. I mean, it's one of the limitations of a, a hierarchical Leninist system is I think oftentimes we assume, you know, Xi Jinping sits in this control room with buttons and dials and, you know, he can you know, move folks around the system. But I think this is just a really fascinating example of just how not true that often is here, even for systems that, again, administratively, Beijing theoretically has full control over. Before we dig into the, the thesis of the book, I wonder, it might be helpful for listeners if we can just spend a question or two describing in broad brushstrokes the structure and strengths, weaknesses of the current tax system, if you don't mind. And maybe it's worth a descriptive question first, which is, if you were in an elevator with me and I said, hey, Wei, describe for me the structure of, of the Chinese tax system and, and it's what sort of types of taxes does it primarily rely on? How would you answer that in a, in a relatively pithy way? Sure. Yeah. No, that's a great question. I would first say that China's tax system is really important. I think that's the first thing to recognize. And my feeling is that people don't recognize that. Usually when people talk about Chinese government control versus social resources, they think about the finance system, state-owned enterprises, ownership of land. All of those things 
are part of the government's stockpile of social control and uh, control of resources, but they are dwarfed by the tax system. And so one has to look at that. In terms of how well the tax system runs, the second thing to note is that about 10 years ago, China was raising about uh, 23-24% of its GDP in various sorts of forms of tax revenue. And that, in some ways, can count as a success because not many developing countries manage to do that. And so you have to give the government credit for building a functioning tax system within 15 years after transitioning to a market economy. The last thing I might say is that tax to GDP ratio has rapidly been declining for the last six, seven years. So official tally says that tax to GDP ratio is now hovering below 14%. So that is unlikely to be sustainable. It's also a very dramatic turn in the Chinese public finance system that we should recognize and we should attribute it to Xi Jinping. It is part of the policy package that he has been implementing. So those are some of the observations I would start with. You know, if you ask how good is the tax system, I think very much depends on benchmarks. Uh, you know, in the United States, we will be very critical of the U.S. tax system. We think that a lot of things are lacking. But you can say both the U.S. and China are outliers. Whatever they do, they just have to, you have to understand them in their own terms instead of comparing them to other countries. Can I ask you to just rewind for a second? I'm intrigued. You said the tax to GDP ratio, which is now hovering around 14%, it was, is a result of Xi Jinping's policies. What specifically has driven it down to that 14% number? Happy to answer this question. So let me be precise. In the public, people have made controversial claims about what China's tax to GDP ratio is. Some people claim that the official reports do not reflect what the government actually collects from society. As a specialist in taxation and public finance, I think it's fairly easy to pin down what the Chinese government collects from its economy. When I quoted the number, a dip from 19% or 20% to 14%, that is a calculation that disregards social security contributions. If you add back social security contributions, we're going to be back at around 20%. But that also means that a few years ago, the tax to GDP ratio was higher. It was 23 or 24%. What explained the dramatic drop in uh, tax to GDP ratio in the last six or seven years, the answer is if you follow tax policy, there's no mystery. There have been tremendous tax cuts in the value added tax, in the corporate income tax, and in some other taxes, including the personal income tax. There has not been major tax cuts in social security contributions, which is why the government is still sustaining a good amount of intake. So they've been making tax cuts. What is the logic behind these tax cuts? The logic behind the tax cuts, I would say there are two things going on. One is, you know, if you talk to people in China, they do not feel that the economy has been going well. They don't feel that for, haven't felt that for the last 15 years. I think the time when China, people in China said that our economy is doing relatively well, I can remember a few years and 
2020 and 2021. That's definitely one episode. But before that, uh, it's a little hard for me to remember when people thought things were going well. Every year, there was some kind of headwind, starting from the financial crisis in 2009, going into, I would say, 2014, and then the trade war between the U.S. and China started. Before the trade war, investment rates China in, in China was dropping. And so the government was very interested in stimulating the economy. Li Keqiang was interested in stimulating the economy. And so, but things just went downhill after that, it seems that political leadership has been tremendously concerned with the rate of economic growth slowing down. And a very crude way they think about economic stimulus is to cut taxes. And so, you know, one could say that you could improve the efficiency of your tax policy, collect the same amount of taxes without slowing down economic growth. That's not the path that the government has chosen. One example is between 2012 and 2016, China reformed its value-added tax so as to incorporate the services sector. And so some people following this will recognize VAT reform. That reform improve the efficiency of indirect taxes in China. And so normally, for policymakers, we say, if we made tax policy instruments more efficient, we can actually raise the tax rates. Li Keqiang didn't understand that. He lowered tax rates after that. And so um, a series of policy missteps uh, against the background of concerns about slowing economic growth. I would say that was one explanation. Maybe we didn't see it, but Art Laffer made a uh, trip to Beijing and was advising the uh uh, the Xi administration on supply side. Let's now dig into the heart of the book. You know, one way to back into this is by asking you what you describe in the administrative foundations of the Chinese fiscal state is something that works, but on rules that aren't implicitly intuitable to, let's say, a U.S. or Canadian audience, which is used to thinking about tax systems based on our own experience of it, right, where we have firm, clear tax law. We have bodies like the IRS, which are the sort of pointy end of the spear, but authority is really back in Washington, D.C. or at the state level in terms of defining, articulating tax law. But it's a really rule of law-based system. That's not what you describe here in this book. An initial question is, how is it that this Chinese tax system which, like a lot of other portions of Chinese governance and administrative systems, is not based on the rule of law, still has a structure and stability to it. How is that possible? This is indeed the central project of the book, to describe a vast state that coordinates at a massive scale, achieves massive tax collection and wealth redistribution without operating according to legal rules. So that's highly unusual if you look at modern tax systems. That is the central message of the book. Describing how it works is what the book attempts to do because it is uh, relatively difficult. But we can start with the following. And so the tax bureaucracy in China is tremendously decentralized. And so that's something to recognize. And for specialists in China, people who study China, this is actually not hard to do. You all know that if you go to China, whether it's to Beijing or other cities, you frequently run into taxpayer service halls. So you can frequently see tax bureaus, buildings. And that's something that the Chinese state built in the late 1990s. Basically, you can say that there are as many tax offices in China 
as there are post offices in the United States. The number roughly is 30,000 in each case. It's that easy to access uh, government offices. From that, it follows that Chinese taxpayers, especially mostly looking at business firms, not individual taxation, business taxpayers get reasonable taxpayer service because any kind of guidance they need, any kind of support with compliance, they can easily approach a local tax office. In turn, the local tax office in providing these services to a vast population of business taxpayers, they also closely monitor these taxpayers. So there's a greater sense among tax administrators at the grass level what's going on with businesses. And the last thing is that Chinese tax administrators have always been under revenue targets. And you can say, to some extent, the IRS, maybe particular divisions of tax administration, even in the United States or in Canada, face revenue targets. But for China, revenue targets are fairly pervasive, and they go down to the grassroots level. And so tax administrators are highly incentivized to monitor with taxpayers, to negotiate with taxpayers, to cajole taxpayers into paying some tax. And uh, that broad net of government tax collection really reaches far, very far. And one reason I think this is interesting to study is by this point, we're all familiar with, because of COVID, because of the reach of neighborhood committees in China, how the Chinese state can reach so many people so directly. That's how Chinese tax administrators work. And so if you want to know how to pay tax, you don't have to call somebody in a different city. There are local hotlines, but there are also people that you can directly talk to. And so that is a system that gives the government certain amounts of power to monitor in ways that we're not familiar in other countries. But at the same time, it means that much tax collection is based on this kind of negotiation, informal monitoring, setting up specific expectations among specific individuals instead of looking at what the law has to say, what are we required to do by some law that you have to consult? Yeah, it reminds me of you know something you will see frequently on China is on the side of the road, the police officer in a traffic accident acting as a mediator between the two parties to settle right a spot transaction or mediation right there. So that's a very different role than we would think of in terms of what the role of a you know Canadian or U.S. police officer would play. Building on that though, you know, you, you talked about the incentive structure for some of these local tax agents and maybe even having revenue targets or having revenue targets, I should say, I apologize. But you also write in the book, quote, Chinese tax administrators have a very high tolerance for inaccurate tax returns and Chinese taxpayers have a very high willingness to file such returns. I certainly understand the second half of the sentence. The first half though perplexes me. Can you fit that together of local tax agents with incentives to meet revenue targets, but tolerant of inaccurate filings. Sure, yeah. This actually immediately follows from what we were just talking about. I want to posit this idea that people don't normally think about, but filing a tax return is basically following the law, a behavior of law following per excellence. Because if you look at a tax return, both uh, either in the United States or in China, if you look at the corporate tax return, there are hundreds, sometimes you can say thousands if you go through all the ancillary schedules, there are hundreds of entries. 
right? And so filing a tax return accurately actually means taxpayers going through each entry and say, what am I supposed to report on this line? That is not something that's possible without people reading the rules, okay? Reading with the instructions for these lines. So that is following the law very closely. And so when I say that Chinese tax administrators don't care about uh, what taxpayers report on the tax returns, I mean that they do not rely on taxpayers having the capacity to follow instruction for the tax returns, learning what is the appropriate thing to report on each line. They like to have a rough sense of what taxpayers have to pay. And once they can collect that amount, it's irrelevant what they actually reported on the tax returns. As a result, many of the entries on tax returns can be highly inaccurate. And strictly speaking, you know, you can say that's lying, that's cheating on your tax returns, but it's not regarded as that in normal practice in China. A completely like fascinating dynamic, which I feel like as an anthropological study on trust and sort of local norms that are hard to appreciate from a distance is worthy of additional study. I, I wanted to ask you then, can we, maybe to make this concrete, you know, you have in the in the book lots of case studies looking at how this plays out, but just can we abstract this for listeners? You're a local tax official. You know, I run a small business. If you are not looking at my return, how does this process work? You've got, let's say, a thousand companies and individuals in your portfolio as a local tax administrator. What, that, what does it then look like in terms of how our, our interactions are structured such that you get the amount of tax revenue out of me you think I owe? Is this just a series of long conversations? Are you intimately familiar with the books of my business? How do they gain the information they need to make the proper assessment? That's a great question, but I want to preface my answer with one methodological one. All right, so How do we find out what on the grassroots level, what people are doing? Things can be different in different places. Uh, people have different reactions depending on the taxpayers you talk to. So all my comments, uh, what I'm about to say, are based on studying internal government documents and looking at data and inferring what is the most coherent account. It's not based on interviews. If you just interview taxpayers, they will say things about tax administrators. <laughs> if you interview tax administrators, they will say different things, right? And so it's really important to say that this is a tricky area of exercise. So if I were an anthropologist, I would be quite unsure how to approach it. I think one plausible account is to say that because tax administrators have rough observations of each individual taxpayer, they form estimates and convey expectations about what they have to pay. So if you're a restaurant, the tax administrator will convey an expectation of what you're supposed to pay based on the size of your operations. And that expectation becomes central. And sometimes the expectations may be justified. And so if you say, I roughly know what kind of revenue you have, and for this industry, your profit percentage is going to be this amount. And so people form rough estimates of what they have to pay. That's basically it. And, and there's different variations of that. If you look at Chinese practice, the amount of taxpayers, the number of taxpayers who claim to be so-called under presumptive taxation, meaning that they don't actually have to calculate their profits and they can just do an estimate, is actually a fairly small 
portion, most taxpayers claim that they're on an accounts-based uh, reporting system, not on a percentage basis. But if you look at the accounts they report, there will be many cases where costs are not accurately reported, where revenue is the key item. So my guess is that for small taxpayers, mostly it's done on that quasi-presumptive basis. For large taxpayers, here the contribution to the fisc in most countries come from very large taxpayers. So here China, like other countries, does rely on the greater compliance tendency of large firms in every respect. And so uh, firms will follow certain rules. It's easy for them to find out what the rules are. Sometimes they're better at learning the rules than tax administrators themselves. And so here is greater reliance on taxpayers' own propensity to report truthfully. But if you look at smaller businesses that are less likely to be compliant, I would say that is this close monitoring and setting up expectations of paying something. How is this system with the degree of flexibility? I guess I'm defining flexibility as the absence of sort of formalized, enforced regulations, determining, especially for the taxpayer, what their in advance, expectation can be about the amount of revenue. I, I hear you that probably there is a lot of implicit knowledge at the local level, which is hard to intuit from, especially you know Washington D.C. But this would seem to be a system which would allow too much room for abuse, especially on behalf of the revenue manager at the local level. What are some of the norms that you've seen develop that restrain? just pure rent-seeking or abusive behavior by revenue managers? I believe that there's probably quite a bit of rent-seeking going on. The question is, what is the scale? Is it so bad that it would disrupt the system? I would say the Chinese government has done a number of things to limit this kind of rampant corruption. And so there is regular rotation of tax administrators among taxpayers, so you're not always stuck with the same tax administrator. There is computerized systems since the early 2000s to monitor what people do. So there are severe constraints on what tax administrators can do in their interaction with taxpayers. All of those things help. And I think a lot of times when you have revenue targets, you are rewarded by the government agency itself in a pecuniary fashion. And so that sometimes can diminish corruption incentives. One thing I want to mention, given what we've been talking about, I do want to say that if you look at Chinese tax law, including administrative guidance, they are excessively simple. And so there is this question some people have raised, is the description coming from the fact that the rules themselves are too simple and too vague? If the rules are so vague, of course, you give a lot of room for discretion to tax administrators. So my observation is that the causal chain goes the other way. It's because this system of grassroots tax administration without rules was so successful that the people in Beijing didn't feel the need to develop very detailed rules. And so they're happy revenue is raised without having very advanced rules. And that's you can say that that forms a sort of a a self-sustaining circle with relatively vague rules, a lot of discretion. All of us have spent time in China. You can see that it's less rule-based. There's a lot of quid pro quo. There's a lot of guanxi. Is it corrupt in such a way that the state cannot function? It has not moved to that level. 
Yeah, so I think it's just because the civil servants are sufficiently well paid that they are okay just doing what they're asked to do. In instances where I know you write that sort of tax controversy is not a widely seen phenomenon, but you know, in instances where local businesses or individuals feel like the assessment brought down on them or the expectation as as you call it is high, what recourse or channels do they normally have to try to find a different adjudication? We look at the population as a whole. If you think about, you know, uh, how many, what percentage of taxpayers are wronged in being asked to overpay tax and what percentage of taxpayers are being asked to pay too little tax? I would say that the latter proportion is probably higher. But if you're among the unlucky ones being asked to pay more tax than you really should, the channels of recourse are not that many. But I would just say that that's not a frequent phenomenon because we're looking at most taxpayers who don't actually know what the law requires them to pay. And so they don't appeal to the law and say, I'm being paid, asked to pay too much. Their expectation was formed on the basis of these interactions with tax administrators in the first place. You know, there's a lot in the book that unfortunately, for the sake of time, we won't we won't be able to dig into. But just even this, I think, is such a fascinating lens into a very complex system that in some ways works. In other ways, you can feel some of the challenges it faces. I wonder if I can actually end on that, which is to get your high-level thoughts as a practitioner and student looking at the Chinese tax system of what's next for this. As we look out over the next 10 or 15 years, it seems apparent that China and the Chinese state is going to be dealing with a rising number of challenges that will put increased burden on its fiscal system whether that's dealing with an aging population and all the attendant normal costs that like the United States, you have to deal with increased burden on the healthcare system, pensions, as well as demands on fostering innovative industries that are the focus of industrial policy, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, with an economy that is structurally slowing down, although still large, what is your assessment of the health of the Chinese tax system? And what's your prognosis for structural changes to the tax system. We're always hearing about potential property tax trial programs, trying to extract more income tax, shift away from the VAT. How do you make sense of that? And what do you think are the the likely realistic reforms that we might expect? So I would say that, first of all, China did make tremendous progress up until the early 2010s, until Xi Jinping took over leadership in raising revenue and spending it in a way that's socially very appealing. And so most importantly, I would say that's the urban and rural basic social insurance system, both for pension and healthcare. And so all of that is funded from tax revenue. And so because of that, people want this kind of social service provided by the government, and there's going to be continuing pressure to raise revenue to provide those services. If we think about future sources of revenue. In theory, there's a lot. You could raise the VAT rate by a few percentage points and raise a lot of revenue. You can stop some of the corporate tax cuts and you'd raise a lot of revenue. You can keep the exemption level for personal income tax the same without raising them if you risk the pressure of uh, affluent people of raising the personal exemption so much. You can keep raising revenue. So those are the things that I 
put hope in the property tax in China is going to raise very little revenue because the social expectation is to have such broad exemptions that I don't think it's uh, really a, a topic. So when people do talk about property taxation in China, I don't feel that they've started talking about China's tax system. But I do put in some faith in the VAT, the corporate income tax. Social Security contributions, and I think there's continued room to improve all of those tax policy instruments. Your point certainly taken on the property tax, which is also probably one of the most politically risky tax areas to to get into, as you as you mentioned, especially given the sensitivities for for a lot of Chinese for whom property is the place you go for asset appreciation. As I mentioned, got to touch really the the surface of this really rich and interesting book, which has a lot of, I think, political theory in it for folks trying to understand the workings of the Chinese state. I think for anyone interested in central-local relations, this is a really important and interesting angle as well. So really a lot in this book that I think is worth the time of students of, of China's political system. So Wei Cui, I want to thank you very much for this really great scholarship and for your time today. Thank you. It's so fun to chat. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 